In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Pawn Order. And today I am back again with uh, another guest host, my guest. Wait a minute. That, it can't be. It's it's Camille Chuck. We are together again. Camille, is that really you? <laughs> hey, Peter, it's been a while, huh? Wow, it feels like it's been forever, but the gang is all back together for at least one episode. We are back together for another episode of Pawn Order. She has returned. Europe is now free of croissants. Uh, vegan croissants have been emptied out of Europe because Camille Lapchuk is back on North American soil. How are you, Camille? Well, I'm pretty full still from all those croissants and all the pastries that I ate in Paris. So, you know, I guess you could say I'm doing pretty well because I just I had a great trip. It's really the good ga- to be back. And- the gallivanting is over, Camille. I, I feel like you, you put the G in gallivanting on this trip. It was really just one nonstop, you know, party free for all vegan restaurant tour. Does that sum it up well? Well, Peter, I feel like you got a lot of mileage out of this whole thing where I'm gallivanting around Europe. And I feel like I heard that a lot on the last podcast you did with Sophie. So sad for you that I'm now back. But yeah, I know it was a it was a pretty epic trip. And I recorded that episode with guest host Samantha Compa from Glasgow, uh, from Scotland, where was uh, the start of the trip. So I went there for an International Vegan Rights Alliance Symposium on protecting the rights of ethical vegans through human rights laws. And then, Peter, we spent a, a little time on vacation in Scotland, and I went to Paris with a good friend of mine who runs the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods at the University of Windsor, and that's a place that attempts to replace animal testing models with um, animal-free technological alternatives. So I had some Paris time and some south of France time, and uh, then back up to London for a talk, and then uh, Oxford for the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics Summer School. See, it seemed to me, Camille, what I saw, what I saw was a lot of pictures of croissants, pastries, uh, various restaurants. I mean, that's, that's, I, I didn't get a sense of all these talks, really. It just seemed like gallivanting <laughs> to me. Well, I don't even think that you follow me on Instagram. Like, you don't even have Instagram, do you? So no. you would not have even seen the half of it, Peter. <laughs> I'm not an Instagramite. I uh, decided that, you know, there was only so much food porn I could handle at one time from you, Camille. So I, I've restricted myself to Facebook. Well, I think that's a mistake because I was posting some pretty epic photos. Like we went to this place in Paris. It's called VG Patisserie. And honest to God, it's like a traditional French style patisserie. So a bakery with all the things you would expect to find in like a non-vegan place. They had croissants, pain au chocolat, this like strawberry shortcake thing that was insane. Um, These delicious quiches, flans. It was just like, it was epic. So I'm sorry that you missed all those pictures because they were pretty great. Well, I'm uh, not so sorry. I, I haven't been to Paris in a while. I'm, I'm getting out to London in December, so I'll have to follow in your footsteps, as it were. But Camille, for me, it's all about work. Let's be honest, right? When I go, it's, it's work. It's not just gallivanting. 
I actually don't believe that, Peter, because I know that you post all kinds of vegan food pictures on Facebook anytime you have a trip. So it does happen. It I does think this happen. is a little case of the pot calling the kettle black. So, Camille, why don't we start at the beginning? I want to I want to take it back because we we really haven't had much of a chance to to catch up. We've had a little catch up on the phone, but I, I wanted to, uh, you know, our our topic for today is really catching up with Camille and 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 finding out, you know, some of the cool stuff you got to do. Why don't you just go back to Scotland for a moment? Tell us about the highlight. What was the 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 highlight of that conference and and what you got out of it? Well, so the reason for that trip, International Vegan Rights Alliance Symposium in Glasgow. And this is actually the third year that they've done this. I, I went to the very first one, Peter. You you might remember this because I went to Berlin for it. And that was 2016. So it's essentially a collection of lawyers and other people from non-legal organizations who are getting together and chatting about sort of two things. Number one is the state of accessibility of vegan food, especially in public institutions. So is the government actually providing people with vegan food in hospitals, uh, in the prison system? Are they discriminating against people in any way? So that's topic number one. And then the second thing, uh, actually, and backing up a sec, labeling laws come into that, um, mm. food description laws, things like whether you can call soy milk milk, whether you can say that um, you know something is uh, vegan meat, for instance, and use that word meat if it's not from an animal. So all kinds of really interesting sort of labeling food issues. But then the second part of that is just protecting the human rights of people who identify as vegan or vegetarian, who avoid eating or using animals for ethical reasons. So we heard from uh, people from Portugal, from Italy, France, the UK, uh, places all across Europe in particular uh, about the work that's being done and the cases that they have. And it was sort of remarkably similar to some of the issues that we hear about here in Canada, actually, where people face discrimination. So cool to see those themes emerge and some rights-based cases going forward. It's kind of an interesting, it's always been an interest of mine. Um, it's It's not... I don't. I don't think this is what we think of first and foremost when we're talking about animals in the law. It's not um, a direct issue involving animals, but I've always thought of it as a very important indirect issue. And the idea that um, if people who want to make a conscious choice to change their way of being um, um, in relation to animals see that as a serious enough issue, it is important. I think, and I, I think you agree, to remove the impediments, the legal impediments that make it so challenging to do so. So. So I, I've always thought that while it, it, it's not a core uh, way of advancing animal issues, it's, it's a really important way of ensuring that supporters of those issues are able to uh, uh, bring them forward in any way that they can. I totally agree. And, you know, it's kind of refreshing and sort of fun in a way when you, you and I, Peter, are doing all this work on behalf of animals. And one of the huge issues that they face is they don't really have standing in court. They don't really have uh, the legal ability to bring suits forward themselves. So it's actually kind of cool and refreshing to work on these vegan rights cases because individual humans, of course, do have human rights protections and can enforce them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a lot of room um, in future to uh, do creative things with uh, freedom of conscience, with the idea of creed that you talked about um, um, with the Ontario Human Rights Code. I, th I think there's room and I, I think it's an exciting area going forward. So glad you were able to uh, talk about that, uh, you know, when you were working a little bit in Scotland. Uh, what, what came <laughs> next? Was, uh, was London next, Camille, or Oxford? I can't remember. Uh, so London was next after that. So after so the, the vacation in France, 
Mm. Well, London was cool. I mean, do you want to hear more about the vegan food or do you want to hear about the actual animal law part? I, you know, Camille, I mean, it, it depends how honest we want to be with our listeners on this show. Do we want to tell them the important stuff or, you know, I'll, I'll let you choose, Camille. You let your conscience dictate. All right. Well, you, you know, you guys, you can just go look at my Instagram if you want to see the vegan food pics. They were pretty great. But let me cut to the animal law stuff. So uh, one thing I did while I was in London, and it just kind of happened to be convenient to set this up because um, a number of people were, were in London or in, in the area to go to this Oxford summer school after. So the weekend before that started, I did a talk sponsored by A-Law in the UK. So A-Law is the, also known as the UK Center for Animal Law. And they're kind of similar to animal justice in the role that they play in the UK. They're the, the only national animal law organization. Um, I would say their focus is a little bit different than ours. They're, they're more of a, a service that provides information and is, I, I would not say it's advocacy focused as animal justice is, but still plays a really huge and, and cool role. So I've, I've known about them. If I can just break in, I've known about A-Law. They started around the same time as I started a group in New Zealand that was more along the lines of animal justice. And I'm, I'm curious to the extent, obviously, you met with them. Have they grown? Like, what is the size and impact of A-Law in, in the UK that you could tell? Well, they seem to be doing quite a lot of work. They have a, a number of trustees, which is essentially board members, and they produce a regular publication, a newsletter style thing. And uh, have a lot of articles on their website. They've got a really good social media presence, too. So check them out on Instagram or Twitter to, to kind of see more about their, their news. But um, the, the talk itself was, it was designed to be more of an intimate talk. Uh, and it was hosted by Goldsmith Law Chambers in, in London. And Peter, it was actually really cool. I don't know about you, but when I was in law school, we just kept hearing all the time about like the birth of the law movement and barristers chambers in London and this whole like temple system that they have in the UK and uh, all this historical stuff about the law. So this chambers was actually in the heart of that whole area where the legal profession just first sort of emerged. So it was really cool to be there. Yeah, absolutely. There's always I, I, I like that stuff too, when you get down and Going back into uh, going back into oh god that just reminds me I got to quote Lord Denning last week sorry that just <gasps> remind me of that later that was like a very exciting moment for me uh, okay we're, <laughs> we're gonna circle back to that <laughs> we'll circle back to that because because it, it's the same sort of idea whenever you get to go back to some of this uh, English stuff that we read so much about in law school it's always kind of exciting so tell me more about the talk Camille uh, I, you weren't alone from what I've heard. No, so it was a double header. I spoke, and uh, Steve Wise from the Non-Human Rights Project in the States spoke as well about his work to uh, to encourage the courts to adopt legal rights for chimpanzees and now elephants and hopefully other species. Yeah, so I, I spoke about the work that we're doing in Canada, and because the UK and Canada share so much uh, due to our common law system, our com sort of commonwealth originating common law system. I feel like there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from each other. So I just kind of wanted to share some of what works for animal justice and the way we focus on legislation and enforcement and, and litigation and some of our successes. Um, you know, I think when you compare the work uh, that we all do in sort of these commonwealth systems to the work that legal advocates can do in the states, one of the biggest differences is that in the U.S., they're super free to sue people mm. because 
parties pay their own costs. If you、mm. lose a case as an animal group, you don't have to pay the other side's costs in most situations. But up here, of course, we do. So it's a it's a huge kind of limit. So I kind of address some of the ways that we've managed to to engage in litigation despite that, which is mostly interventions. Yeah, it's a, it's it's we've we've raised this, I'm sure, in a in a podcast before. It's 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 something that people just don't understand. It's the same problem I face in New Zealand, the same problem other advocates face in in Australia, and there's and, and there's no doubt that they face it in the UK as well. It, it, We are confined by our legal system, and this has nothing to do per se with animals. But、uh, restrictions on the legal system that make it harder for parties to bring、uh, challenges forward is a real impediment in actually advancing those causes. So people people sometimes see all the the cool litigation that's going on in the U.S. and they don't realize that that litigation can take place because they don't have to worry about getting slapped with a hundred thousand dollar costs order if they lose. Yeah, exactly. You know, if we had an unlimited sort of fund to cover those cost awards, we'd be laughing. But the reality is, we we don't not yet. And for those of you interested in funding that cost award,、uh, you can always contact us on the Animal Justice homepage. www.animaljustice.ca/slash/donate. <laughs> the calls are coming in, Camille. I can just feel them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, me too. Okay, so、yeah. uh, how, how was、uh, Stephen Wise's talk? Oh, it was good. It was good. I mean, Steve、uh, talks about. Uh, his work often, and I've heard him speak many times. So I wouldn't say I necessarily learned anything new, but it's always he's always an engaging speaker and、mm. kind of gives the background on how he first conceived of the work that he wants to do to、um, to bring about legal rights for animals through the common law system and his habeas corpus、uh, theories. Yeah,、so、we, should, we should probably、cool. we should probably backfill a little bit. I keep forgetting that not everybody on this podcast is as familiar as we are. Stephen Wise is a very particular type of advocate. We've talked about him before because I remember we did a talk a couple episodes back, Camille, where we referred to a judgment from the New York State Court of Appeals that was、um, the first one that was a little bit favorable towards some of the work that Stephen Wise is doing. But but to make a long story short, he's made it very clear that he wants to challenge、uh, rights positions and rights positions only. He is、uh, attempting to leverage、uh, the case of chimpanzees or elephants and other animals to actually obtain、uh, legal protection that cannot be taken away from them. In the form of rights in the courts, and、uh, he's he's bringing a lot of different uh, uh, cases forward in an attempt to make this happen. Yeah, that's right, and and he of course focuses on habeas corpus cases, which is an ancient writ that writ is basically a cause of action that allows you, if you believe that you've been unlawfully imprisoned. To go before a court and seek your release, so he's seeking the release essentially of chimpanzees and now elephants in Connecticut, and、uh, you know what he's asking the court to do essentially is declare that these animals are persons, so persons with legal status under the law. That doesn't mean human beings, but it means they have standing. And、uh, some degree of rights. So he's asking the court on that basis to free these animals from captivity. Yeah, there is no shortage of writing on this for anybody who's interested. If you are interested, I actually recommend Steve's first book, Rattling the Cage, which I think is a pretty good primer. And it, the, the nice thing about it is, for those of you who are non-lawyers listening to the show, it's written essentially for non-lawyers.、Um, I can tell you that the legal arguments surrounding what Steve is trying to do get a lot more complicated.、Uh, probably something we can touch on in a future episode. Yeah, we should do a personhood episode at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on. We've 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 got you through London, and eventually you make your way up to Oxford, Camille.、Um, aside from the croissants and the various、uh, pastries, what else、uh, took place up there? 
Well, Peter, you'll be happy to know that my first stop was a pub that has a pop-up vegan Sunday sort of roast, which is a thing in the UK that they do on Sundays. So a lot Good of people gosh. go to pubs and <laughs> eat these roasts. You're just so that hurting was super me fun. Now. You're just hurting me. This is getting painful. Yeah, I know, but I know, but our listeners want to hear it. Sorry, sorry, Peter. <laughs> That was awesome. And yeah. overall, so the summer school event that I went to, it, it was hosted by the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And this is a really great entity existing, sort of affiliated with the University of Oxford that uh, puts on various programs and events. And one of these is the summer school that they've done. I think this is now the fifth year for it. Mm. But essentially, it's a three-day intensive school is kind of the best word for it, with uh, this year, at least, a focus on animal law. And Peter, it brought together some of the most incredible animal legal minds in the world. There were people from, uh, you know, I think all continents just, there. Just a few were missing. Is that right? Just a few. Well, we missed you, Peter. We really <laughs> missed you. <laughs> you should come next year. I'm, I'm thinking of going next year. But anyway, yes, go ahead. I'm looking here at this list because uh, a lot of my good friends were there. So let's talk about it. Yeah, I know. Who is it really a it was a who's who of the animal legal community on a global scale. Well, uh, you know, most of the usual suspects, a lot of people from the Animal Legal Defense Fund were there, lots of people from ALA in the UK. Um, all of our Swiss friends from Tier Imrecht were there, which is Very the good Swiss friends. animal was, law. Uh, so Geary was there, I take it, correct? Geary yeah, Geary was there. And also, how many other people? I think that there were five or six people from TIR overall, which was pretty cool. They always travel as a they always travel as a pack. TIR is a wonderful group <laughs> I, uh, that that's based in uh, Switzerland, doing some incredible work. They're essentially a nonprofit that essentially does incredible uh, educational and and litigation support for animal rights. One of the biggest, actually, probably one of the biggest animal advocacy uh, law group that's based on law exclusively in the world. Um, it's got to be right up yeah. there with ALDF. And yeah, they just I think do that they're fantastic work. They really do. I think they're just right behind ALDF. They apparently now have, I think, 18 people, Jerry told me. So that's huge. Yeah, I visited their office in uh, 2016, and it was fantastic. They've just got an incredible library. They have one of the biggest animal law libraries in the world. They collect uh, from every different language. They have all the German stuff, all the all the uh, French and uh, other language stuff that's a lot harder for us to get. And it's just it's it's an incredible facility. And the people there are doing just such great work trying to advocate for animals in a variety of ways. They they write out publications. They assist prosecutors in Switzerland, and of course, they speak all over the world. So. Very lucky to get a chance to meet them. I'm hoping we're going to see them in Chicago in October. Yeah, I think we're trying to convince a few of them to show up. So who else was there, Camille? Let's keep going. Okay, well, um, some of your old friends, Peter, from Down Under happened to be there. So Danielle Duffield and Jed Goodfellow in particular. Danielle, of course, is from New Zealand, and Jed works out of Australia. And I think we've actually talked about Jed on the podcast before because he's done a lot of work on live export and ending the live export of, of sheep from Australia, which we've discussed. Yeah, he's 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 almost a friend of the podcast, though I don't think he's ever heard it before. Did he did he ever mention <laughs> did he mention whether he's heard it? I've I've shouted him out like fifteen times, but I'm starting to get annoyed. I don't think he actually listens. Ooh, I'm gonna have to email him. Yeah, I'll send him a note. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. There there were a few people from Harvard Law there, which was great too. Uh, was to there? Day, of course. Was there anything new that came out of Jed's talk about the live export? I mean, it's obviously right up to the minute. So anything uh, particularly new that came out? Well, he spoke a lot about enforcement issues and um, not as much about live export. 
Um, but I actually wasn't at his talk. I was in the competing one. There were two tracks all day long each day. And so it was a challenge sometime when two speakers were, were head to head with each other. Right. Always a challenge. And what Always did you challenge. speak about? What did you speak about this one? I spoke about um, something that's we've discussed on the podcast before and something that's been sort of brewing in my mind for a while, which is the increasing privatization of animal law making and also enforcement. So this isn't a new theme. We've discussed it before, but I'm kind of categorizing it as a privatization issue. What we're seeing, of course, Peter, is this really disturbing trend of these industry-led and uh, focused and dominated bodies creating so-called codes of practice for the use of various animals. Now, that could be animals used in laboratories. It could be animals used in farming. Um, it could be dog breeding or cat breeding. But these bodies are creating these codes, which are not laws. They're not binding. They're not enforceable. And of course, they're not created by the public. They're created mm. essentially by industries. Yet what we're starting to see, and, and you know, if that was just the case, it would be industry self-regulation. They're making their own rules and you know, that's fine if they want to do that and communicate to the public about it. But what really troubles me is that we're seeing these codes being adopted into law now, into certain right. statutes provincially. Um, they, they already exist in, in many provinces, and some provinces are moving to adopt them as well. And I think that's troubling because you're cutting the public out of the equation. You're not giving people a democratic voice in the content of the law. You're letting the industry create the law. Well, you're discussing so, my August because that's the paper I'm working on in August as well, uh, working on this issue of uh, same thing, uh, subordinate, essentially uh, subordinated uh, legislative decision making, which goes to uh, n let's call them non-governmental bodies. Can we do that? Because if I call them industry, they're going to object and say, well, it's not <laughs> just industry. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, they're non-governmental bodies that are making decisions about uh, animal interests, and those decisions subsequently get enacted into law. So I agree with you. That is a, a huge issue um, going forward. It's, it's, we're, we're obviously both very interested in that particular topic. Yeah, definitely. And I think the more sort of scholarship and discussion we have of this, the better, because a lot of Canadian groups are actually focused on adopting these into law, too, and think that that's a good approach. And I can't say I'm on the same page about that. Um, yeah. And, you know, the other thing, Peter, is that Canada's, uh, I wasn't really expecting this when I started researching it, but Canada is somewhat unique in the way that these codes are created. The, the codes exist in other jurisdictions like New Zealand, Australia, the UK. But in those jurisdictions, the codes tend to be created by governments. There's a requirement mm. that they produce them by statute. And mm. so the public actually has an opportunity to participate in that. The government can be held to account if the, the codes are crappy and don't do a good job of protecting animals. But that's not the case here. Yeah, I did a comparative look on this, and uh, I think it was 2015, I did a, a comparison between the New Zealand uh, mode of doing this and the Canadian one. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't go overboard in lauding the, uh, you know, necessarily the way it's done in other jurisdictions in the sense that they have some let's say, loopholes in the way they do things as well. But there's mm -hmm. no question that they're a great deal more transparent than ours. Uh, we have essentially outsourced our entire decision-making process to, again, um, a non-governmental board, I'm going to call them, that let's just say is, can we say heavily represented by animal industries? Or is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think that's the understatement of the year. <laughs> I believe, <laughs> I yes. believe it's, it's 50 to 70 percent populated by animal industries, at least. Uh, it varies from committee to committee, but that was my, my study at the time showed 50 to 70 percent. And there's no question that without having a governmental regulator uh, oversight, you lose the ability to control the way in which this takes place. And that's uh, definitely a troubling trend. So I'm glad you were able to talk about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. The the other thing that that my presentation focused on is not just the private making of laws, but also the private enforcement or quasi enforcement of laws or 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 legalish rules. Mm. And of course, we talked about this at length on the podcast. But um, SPCA's and humane societies enforcing public laws. Uh, those mm. are private organizations. They're charities. They're it depends on the province, but often not subject to very much oversight. In some jurisdictions, like you know Australia and New Zealand, they're actually in charge of doing all the prosecutions themselves. Uh, same with the UK. Here we kind of let them investigate, but then the public bodies prosecute. And it raises all kinds of issues. You know, the fact that they still have to fundraise to to pay their way and do the work that they do raises conflict of issue, uh, conflict of interest issues, because they may be soliciting funds from the very people that they're supposed to be policing. Um, the public degree of oversight, of course, is another huge issue. We often can't get access to information requests from, from those bodies. There's often no way to complain about the actions of an individual officer. We don't know what kind of agreements they might have about enforcement with industry groups themselves. So it just raises all kinds of really troubling concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And this has come up on our podcast before and it will come up again. And, and, and the one thing that I want to say about it is it seems to me this is the first time, Camille, I mean, this, we should point out that the private investigation of, um, of animal cruelty offenses in Canada is not a recent development. This is like, it's always been this way. And I don't know about you, I don't want to go too far down this road uh, today, but just say, we are starting to see some cracks. Like it really, it really feels like there is a shift. And I'll just cite like two or three things. Even that Edmonton Humane Society story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, which we're going to follow up on today, is sort of a sign that there's a little bit of a crack. We talked about the Bogarts case where somebody is constitutionally challenging this. Last week, I don't know if you had a chance to hear the podcast, but Sophie Gaillard came on and talked about the real difficulties that the SPCA is having in communicating with the Quebec government. And I think think we are starting to finally see cracks in this uh, this framework that I wouldn't surprise me if there was a shakeup in the next couple of years. I think you're right, Peter. The, the sentiment among the public and among groups as well definitely feels different than it did before. And I think people are really questioning why it is that we have these public laws, yet we don't think that they're important enough to invest government resources and agencies in actually enforcing them. You know, why is it that animal protection and animal welfare tends to be a private responsibility that the public should fund? That just makes no sense. It makes no sense. And it is something that's gone on simply for the most part because of convenience. I'd say there are some other issues at stake as well that are a little bit more complex, but mainly it's been out of convenience to the government so that they don't have to fund this sort of endeavor. And the idea is, well, if, if, if we didn't have these SPCAs, no one would investigate because nobody cares. And I think that sentiment is changing. I think people have signaled that we want these animal cruelty offenses to be investigated and to continue to fall back on this old trope that if the SPCA doesn't do it, no one will. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to stand up in the long run. I think there's just too many flaws in the way the system is run. Yeah, yeah, I completely I completely agree about that. And, you know, I, I want to be fair about it. Like there are some benefits to having SPCAs do this type of work in a sense. And I mentioned this in my presentation. SPCAs tend not always, but often have people in there who are really passionate and committed to animal protection and they get the issues. So from that perspective, you can see it as being a really good thing. But then when you look at the structure and you look at how hampered they are in terms of resources and legal authority, you have to question whether those good people can even do a good job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Sounds like it was a hell of a trip, Camille. I'm, I'm, 
I, I'm sorry, you've got to put your feet back down on North American soil and sort of get back into life over here in the drudgery. Uh, I, I hope we manage to get your croissant here and there just to keep your spirits up. Well, luckily, there's lots of sources of vegan croissants in Canada. <laughs> so I'm glad about that. There is just one more theme I wanted to mention from, sure. from the Oxford Summer School before we move on. There were really interesting presentations by two people, Andrew Bashy, who's a lawyer and now a veterinary medicine student in the States, in New York State, and also my friend Justin Merceau, who's a professor at the University of Denver, uh, Sturm College of Law. And they both spoke about similar themes, which is this idea of, um, you know, a, a conception of animal law that involves strong penalties, strong enforcement, cracking down on, on animal abuse, making crimes felonies, um, incarcerating people who've committed animal cruelty offenses, and questioning whether that is ultimately compatible or um, or useful to the goal of really protecting animals, and especially animals in industrial situations where they, they tend to suffer the most. And to what extent this whole sort of incarceration model perpetuates mm. this idea that we're keeping animals in cages. And, mm. you know, does does jailing humans really help protect animals? So, um, you know, Peter, you and I both have backgrounds and, and you currently work as a defense counsel part time. So I found this really appealing and interesting because I see huge problems with simply throwing people in prison. So uh, Justin's actually writing a book on this that's set to come out this fall, which I can't wait to read. Me too. I, I, that sounds like a theme that I've written about in the past. It's the same idea. My, my view is that as long as we conceptualize animal cruelty as malicious harms against animal, we're totally missing the point. I actually think it's a diversion. I actually think we're going after the wrong conduct. Uh, it makes no sense to me, as we've talked about on this podcast, to, to suggest that 99% of the animal cruelty prosecutions involve some guy maliciously, you know, beating on a uh, one animal or another. And by all means, those things are not good and we shouldn't condone them. But the problem is that the more we conceptualize that as cruelty, the more the other types of cruelty that I think are endemic to the way in which we treat animals today get brushed under the rug. And I think that is a problem. And I'm hoping that's sort of one of the one of the aspects of what uh, Justin's planning to write about. Yeah, yeah, I think it will be. So I, I hope when his book comes out, I, we already sort of plan on having him up to Toronto to talk about it and, and give a little, little book discussion. Uh, but I do hope it'll prompt some sort of reexamination or just uh, more thoughtfulness maybe about some of our priorities as animal protection groups and whether calling for strong sentences and jail time for offenders is necessarily the best approach. God, absolutely. Now you're just touching on, again, some of my many hobby horses. Oops. I, I can hear the hooks. But it's like, I, I've talked about that before. I remember one of my favorite quotes was a couple of years ago when I was talking about um, somebody, there was a, an, a New Zealand MP and he was like, uh, you know, he's just, we got to fix everything. We're going to have to up the sentences for animal cruelty. And he calls me up and I have a long talk with him and I remember it very vividly. And I'm like, look, there's this is this doesn't do anything you're addressing the wrong thing there's lots of things you can do that's not one of them and then later on he goes up and he goes on the air and he's like look we have to do it it's the least we can do for animals and and i remember writing a blog post and i said you know you nailed it like it's absolutely the least you can do like th there's nothing less you can do than just upping the sentence it doesn't really fix anything but that's what happens every time and frankly we saw that take place in Canada as well when the when the main animal cruelty reforms of the early 2000s fell apart immediately everybody jumped on board and said well at least we can rally around and raise the sentences for animal cruelty well what the hell does that do how does that actually address any meaningful change for animals 
Yeah, and Justin has compiled evidence that uh, people who are jailed for crimes actually go on to recommit those crimes at much higher rates, including potentially for animal cruelty. So, you know, not only might it not solve the problem, it might actually exacerbate the problem. Yeah, I tend to think so as well. Wow, very exciting. I look forward to uh, reading about that. Now, Camille, while you were away, I believe some good stuff happened to you on home soil. Camille, our, 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 our favorite executive director of Animal Justice, has been nominated for an award. Camille, congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very humbled by it. So, Peter, I'm nominated for the Lisa Grill Compassion Award, which is given out every year by the Toronto Vegetarian Association. Uh, so it's an award designed to go to a community activist who's doing great things for animals. So, you know, obviously I'm super touched that anyone would think of nominating me for it. Um, although to tell you the truth, I actually don't want to win because you know who else is nominated? <laughs> Some of our good friends, so uh, Board of Directors of Animal Justice member Kimberly Carroll, who's one of the geniuses behind our media and our videos and, um, of course, hosts all our events. I know many of you will know who she is. And her partner, Matt Noble. So the two of them run run the Toronto Vegetarian Food Bank. And I just so admire the work that they do to, to provide healthy, fresh, delicious meals to people who really need it. Um, and then another friend, Louise Jorgensen, is the other nominee, and she does does great work in photography through the save movement. So um, it's sort of an uncomfortable situation, Peter, because I don't really want to be up against my friends and I'd kind of rather see some of them win it. Camille, Camille says this, but really like she would push by Kimberly in a second. She would literally shove her into the third row to go collect her award. Oh, so you're please, so mean. listeners, don't buy not. this. Don't buy this for a minute. Seriously, congratulations, I- Camille. I'm very proud of you. Well, thanks. And I actually do have one funny story to tell about this award. So the very first year that they gave it out, um, so it's called the Lisa Grill Compassion Award. And Lisa Grill is the sister of Gary Grill and the wife of James Silver, who, of course, are the two incredible vegan criminal defense lawyers who represented Anita Crines in the pig trial. And this is way before they did that. But uh, I was on a panel discussion at the Toronto Veg Fest the night that they were giving out this award. So my panel was first, and uh, after that, the award ceremony was happening. So James and Gary were both in the audience. And, you know, after uh, after the award went out, this was 2011, James came up with Gary, and they're like, hey, we're two vegan criminal defense lawyers. Do you want an articling job? Oh, right. And- I remember that now. And I did need an articling job. I was entering my third year of law school, which is typically when people start to find them. So I ended up articling for James and working closely with him and Gary for for a number of years. So, you know, the award has a special meaning to me. And what's funny about this is um, I, I knew Lisa Grill growing up. This is just all the circles uh, of weaves come together. Lisa Grill is originally from Montreal. I, I knew her. We weren't close friends, but she was very good friends with a good friend of mine. So it's really funny to see her name on the award because like, literally we were high schoolers together. So interesting. Wow. Canada is such a small country. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, Peter, enough about me. What have you been up to? God, enough How did about you fare you, with me gone? God, 35 minutes. <laughs> How did I fare with you, Gone? Um, I fared okay. It was, uh, it, it's been busy here. I've been working, Camille. I've had no time for gallivanting whatsoever. I'm about to start gallivanting. Aww. I'm only gallivanting around Western Canada, but uh, I am, I'm about to go on vacation. This is actually my last official duty of work before I head on vacation. So I'm very excited. It's been a very busy couple of weeks. Congrats. So, yes. yeah. First of all, where are you going on vacation? I am going, we are going out to BC. Um, we have 
Excuse me. We have um, rented a cottage and we are just having a little family vacation out in BC. Nothing super duper exciting, but very relaxing. Well, I think you deserve a break. And especially because I know that you had a pretty big win recently in court. Do you want to fill us in? Sure. This was pretty exciting. I um, This has nothing, again, nothing to do with animal law, but kind of indirectly does, I suppose. Um, I, as many of you knew, uh, I'm very busy with appellate work. I've taken on a part-time appellate practice, and I do uh, a number of cases. I'm going up to the Supreme Court of Canada in October. But uh, last week, I went to trial. I don't do trials very often, and I had a three-day trial. And we won. It was really exciting. Um, I haven't uh, been, I haven't gone to trial in 22 years. Um, wow. And it, was, yeah, it was my first time at trial and it was really exciting. It was good to be back in the courtroom. And I say it indirectly affects on animal justice because, to be honest, it would be good to get back into trial with the right type of case. And I, I may actually end up, uh, spoiler for future, I may end up defending a couple of activists on some charges um, in the near future. So it, it, being able to go back to trial was really important for me to sort of resuscitate my skills. And as I hinted earlier, um, this was a criminal case, of course, but it was nonetheless one of my dreams. It had a contract element to it. And I got to quote from Lord Denning. It was like going back to law school. And every law student oh my knows God. that uh, it's sort of a dream to be able to rely on some Lord Denning because we all study Lord Denning in law school when we do contracts. And I got to read out the judge smiled, I smiled. It was just fantastic. I said, well, as Lord Denning says, supporting my point, how much better does it get than uh, that? Well, for anyone who didn't go to law school, Lord Denning is kind of an institution and, you know, sort of a hilarious figure because he's so eminently quotable. He has these just hysterical quotes about all kinds of contract issues. So, um, yeah, and if you went to law school, you'll remember Lord Denning. Yeah, and it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was fun to be back in the courtroom. And uh, I'm glad it's over because it was a lot of work. And uh Glad to be back to uh, some of the other stuff I do. But yes, I'm taking some much needed time off. Can you believe, Camille? We just got back together and I'm already going on holiday. <laughs> Our holiday schedules I know. have not interacted. So listeners, it's yet one more guest host next week uh, for the next podcast. We were glad we were able to barely overlap to get this one in. But yes, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to relax, be back fresh and ready so we can. we've got an exciting fall lineup for Pawn Order. Yeah, we sure do. And Peter, I really hope you get some good R&R and also that you uh, manage to have some good vegan food because that's what life's all about, right? I'll do my best. I've been looking over the Okanagan Valley for vegan food. And I got to tell you, um, I think the Okanagan's got to up its game a little bit. I didn't see anything that jumped out at me, but uh, I'll let you know if, if anything exciting pops up on there. Mm, sounds good. All right, so why don't we uh, dig in? Today's the, we knew that there was a lot of uh, things to catch up on, and we've we've taken about forty minutes just to catch up on everything that's taken place. So, so we do not have a main topic per se. We've just got a lot of news. So, I guess we could say that our main topic today is catching up on the news since we've been gone. Yeah, keeping up to date on all this stuff. So, so Peter, here's a court case that uh, we're going to talk about that, again, it's not really directly related to animal law, but it has huge implications for us and for all kinds of other organizations that do animal work. So recently, a group named Canada Without Poverty successfully got some really restrictive rules on charities struck down in, um, in court. So essentially, they went to court and they said, look, 
The CRA, the revenue agency, imposes this rule on charities that you can't do any more than 10% of your budget directed at political activity. So uh, this was obviously hugely problematic for, for all kinds of charities because if you're in the business of creating social change, the best way to do that is to get political and, and to do some work involving politicians and public advocacy and discussing issues and building social consensus. And this weird arbitrary 10% rule from the CRA um, was... A, really difficult to interpret because what does the word political even mean? Like everything is political. It's just sort of one of those words that has no meaning because it's so broad or so narrow, arguably. Um, and of course, B just really made it very difficult for, for groups to do any any sort of work. So um, this court case struck down that rule as unconstitutional. And this could have pretty huge implications for charities that do animal protection work, too. Yeah, I think it's a big one, at least has the potential to be a big one. I'm very curious uh, to see what the CRA, uh, Canada Revenue Agency, has to say about this, because um, as I recall from my tax law classes way back in the day, uh, every victory is as good as until the next Income Tax Act revision, correct? <laughs> it doesn't like they could fix this if they wanted to, couldn't they? Yeah, you know, they could probably do something about it. They also might appeal. They still have a, a window of opportunity to do so within the appeal period right now. I think they have until like maybe mid-August to do that. So we'll see if they appeal. We'll see what the federal government does. I know that they've been sort of re-examining this rule and they've been collecting input from a lot of charities about whether it makes sense. So they might well just decide to do something else, which would nullify this decision and then you know, potentially um, create another sort of area for challenge. But, but there's but no for doubt. animal groups. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, just for animal groups, this is really important. So it's it's often been a huge um, barrier to the kind of work that we do. Uh, things that are charitable objectives that, that animal groups can do include things like law enforcement and public education, but there's sort of confines on that too within this whole context of political activity. So for some animal groups, um, they've actually lost charitable status because they were deemed to be too political. And the Fur Bear Defenders is one of those groups. Others have just never tried to register for charitable status. At Animal Justice, we have a charity and we have a nonprofit wing and they do do different work based on um, what the what the laws allow. So this could be pretty huge for us. It could be pretty huge for other groups. And, you know, if you're not familiar with the whole idea of charities versus nonprofits, the major difference is that charities can issue tax receipts for donations. And a lot of people really only like to donate to charities for that reason, because there's a financial benefit. So it could open up the door to a lot more financial support from the public, which would be really good for animals. Yeah, I think it'd be great. And I think it, it is. I, I, that's what I was going to say. It's very important for animal charities like animal justice. Uh, people forget all too often how important it is. We do survive on the basis of uh, public support and the ability to, uh, to issue tax uh, uh, receipts is, uh, is, is certainly it certainly helps. Uh, there's no question. I don't think it's a, you know, an overwhelming barrier if you can't, but it certainly helps if you can. And I, I don't see why certain charities that do traditional things like all the SPCAs, for example, are able to do this because they're shelter organizations, whereas the groups that get a little bit more political who are aiming for real uh, meaningful change for animals find it much more difficult. So I think a case like this that helps to uh, restructure the way we think about charities uh, from a tax perspective has some real potential to make some change. Yeah, it could be very good. So we'll keep you posted on the next steps in this. All right. We, uh, All right. Are, in the, we are in the midst of a heat wave, Camille. Uh, well, there's 
been quite a heat wave. Has, has, has it been hot out there? You, you've been in Europe. I don't know. You, <laughs> you didn't know there's been a heat wave. Um, it's been hot, but that doesn't stop the trucking. The trucking of animals all across the country is ongoing, and that has some impacts, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And under Canadian transport laws, there's no maximum temperature or minimum temperature after which you can't transport animals. There's just no guidelines there in the statute. Generally, you're not allowed to overcrowd animals, and you can't transport them in a way that causes undue suffering, including because of heat. But what that word actually means, undue suffering, is it's kind of vague. You can just listen to our podcast from last week. What's undue? Yeah. What's unnecessary? We'll fill it all in for you. Look at that. Yeah. No one Those really throwbacks. knows. No one yeah. really knows. So we've been getting just tons of video footage sent to us from save movement activists in particular and people who are outside of slaughterhouses who are able to see the conditions that, especially we've been seeing a lot of pig cases, the, the conditions that pigs are being transported in. Uh, there was one just particularly horrific video out of Kamloops, BC, that some activists gathered of uh, this truck full of pigs that were just so overcrowded that they were climbing on top of each other. They had no room. It was a really hot day, and the conditions were clearly in violation of the statute, in my opinion. Um, so they put out a video. We helped circulate it, and um, it did prompt CFIA action. So they are, are apparently inspecting this shipment, and we'll see what they actually do about it because I don't have a lot of faith in them. But, you know, if there's ever a case for enforcing these transport regs, it's that one. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Other other news. Quebecers, correct? Good news. Yeah. Some really cool news, Peter, out of Quebec. The Montreal SPCA, our, our friends over there, Sophie and, and Alana, for now, uh, they've done a poll uh, about the Quebec election, which is coming up in the fall, and mm. they asked people what they thought Quebec, uh, what they thought of uh, candidates and animal welfare policies. And the poll showed that 72%, so an overwhelming majority of people in Quebec, want animal welfare to be a part of the upcoming provincial election campaign, which is pretty astounding, if, if I do say so. Wow, that is a big number. I mean, I'm always a little, you know, to, to throw a little bit of water on that, I'm always a little bit skeptical of the extent to which that translates into actual action. But but I still think the number is impressive. I think when 72% percent of respondents, and, and let's be clear, this was this was a poll, it wasn't conducted by the SPCA, it was conducted for the SPCA, so it's a, essentially an independent polling firm, uh, find 72% of people think it's important, that's significant. That, that is something that, that, again, shows perhaps we're trans some of this, some of these ideas into actual political action. Yeah, it's a really big deal. And for politicians out there who have ignored these issues for too long, I think it shows that you can't keep doing that, that uh, people are demanding better and that the conversation is shifting away from, you know, let's just ignore animals towards let's give them actual protections and discuss their interests. And I totally take your point, Peter. I think, you know, if you ask this percentage of people if they're going to vote on animal issues, the percentage probably would be much smaller. But even if it's, you know, only 10% or 20%, uh, that makes a really big difference in really tight ridings. So I think you can make the case for politicians um, that having strong animal welfare policies might put them over the edge and might make the difference between winning or losing a seat. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I'm, I'm always... I'm always interested to see how these, um, I've seen some polls in similar uh, uh, situations asking things about, um, you know, relationships of, would you like to see more animal protection in these areas? And then would you prepare to pay more cost for them? And you get these <clears throat> weird numbers that don't always match up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, even even things like cruelty laws. So if you pull people in Canada, 95% of us or somewhere thereabouts say that we want to see tougher animal cruelty laws, but 
of course, every time we've seen bills proposed at the federal level to That's actually do this, mm. yeah, politicians don't want to don't want to listen and and don't believe that there's enough blowback from the people who even say that they care for it to make a difference to their electoral futures, which frankly is what most of them care about the most. I'm waiting, Camille. Are you going to get on your hobby horse? Because like I'm waiting for you to remind <laughs> oh. everybody to write your MP and get involved now. Write to your damn MP, write to your MPP, your MLA, your city councilor, meet with them, make sure they know that animal protection is your on, on your agenda. And that's my hobby horse rant for today. How did you hold it in, Camille? How did you hold it in? Like, I could see I don't know, it we made it 46 out. minutes without me talking about this. That must be a record. About, about direct political action. Now, Camille, I turned on my TV this morning. Actually, it was Facebook. It wasn't my TV, but I did see you. You were on the TV. You were talking to the people at Global about an unfortunate polar bear shooting. Camille, what happened? Yeah, I was. So thanks to Global TV, the morning show yesterday, I, I was on with host Jeff MacArthur, who always gives a great interview. And we were talking about a cruise line, a German cruise line, Hapik Lloyd, that was operating a cruise in Norway. And this is in a, an area sort of north of north of the main sort of Norway land. Um, on these northern islands where there are just tons of polar bears. It's obviously super dangerous. The polar bears um, own this territory. It's not human territory, but we've invaded it with these so-called like ecotourism cruises. So what happened is the cruise ship decided it would land on this one island and some guards got out to like make sure it was clear of polar bears. And guess what? There was a polar bear because it's their habitat and their territory. And the polar bear um, attacked a guard in, in, in some manner. So the other guards shot the polar bear, um, shot him dead or her dead. So that polar bear is now dead, all because tourists wanted to go up there and be around in polar bear habitat. So, Peter, what I said on the news is that, you know, first of all, there's only 25,000 of these bears left in the world. They only live in one place, which is the Arctic. So why can't we just give them that one place so they can live in peace and, and we're not further diminishing their populations by invading them? Absolutely. Let's just, you know, environmentally degrade the Arctic ice so that they can die out in peace naturally because they can't. Oh, sorry. That's not what we were going for, was it? I know. And, and this heat wave, of course, is a great reminder of what else we're doing to them, which is climate change. We were hoping for a more optimistic story, but I'm glad you got to say that. Obviously, these issues of environmental tourism and sort of impact tourism and the idea of impeding on the animal's habitat is one that... Uh, continues to come up with uh, the rise of selfies and the desire to get into the animal's face and then suddenly something happens and the animal has to be uh, uh, dealt with, shall we say. It's always unfortunate. It is. And I can appreciate the sentiment behind going on an eco-tourist kind of excursion. Like people do want to be more uh, mindful and less consumptive and less exploitative than, say, going to zoos or aquariums. But it's important to actually look at the details of what you're doing. And far too often these situations end with us just getting too close to the animals and either disrupting their natural routines or actually disrupting and ending their lives in this case. Yep. Now we've got another story. So it's all going on in the wild, Camille. Uh, I know you wanted to talk about uh, a story that's been all over the news recently involving an orqua named, I, I will not been able to pronounce her name. Is it Talequa? Is that correct? I know. I'm going to get it wrong too, but Talequa, I yep. think, in the Pacific Northwest or the Puget Sound area. And if you've logged on to Facebook anytime within the last few weeks, you've probably seen this story, but she unfortunately birthed a calf who died about a half an hour after um, after birth. So she carried this baby for 17 months. The calf died pretty quickly. And obviously she's devastated because 
Uh, as a mother, she feels grief just like human mothers do. So what we've seen now is that she's been carrying her dead calf around on her nose through the ocean for seven whole days now and in an apparent sort of mourning grieving ritual. Uh, and it's not just her. At this point, she's people are actually concerned about her health because she spent so much time focusing on the calf. And other members of her pod and her family have stepped in to, to help her carry the, 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 the deceased baby at this point. So it's interesting to me, although it involves no animal law issues whatsoever, other than, you know, arguably the um, terrible legal protections that we afford to orcas and their habitat that are mm. uh, t contributing to their decline. But I think what it's displayed to a lot of people is that orcas and other animals are just like us in all the ways that matter. Um, just like a human mother who loses a baby grieves, this orca mother is grieving as well. And her pain is just so apparent and visible through this display. So I hope it's sensitizing people to um, to the need to do better for them. Yeah, no question. This, uh, the more we learn, of course, about these uh, these incredible mammals, the, the more we, we, we learn that they, they have capacities far beyond what we thought they did, uh, or at least what we uh, assumed they did in the past. Would you believe, Camille, that I only recently watched Blackfish for the first time? I just I oh, just I... caught up with it. It had been on my wow. list for ages. Yeah, it was it was of course quite quite powerful. I mean, I knew the basics of the story, but uh, obviously this story resonates more for me when I've seen a little bit more about how 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 those mammals are trafficked around the world. Just an incredible story. Yeah, yeah, and there's some just really compelling, heartbreaking footage in Blackfish of of mother orcas and having their babies torn away from them, and just oh, the God, anguish. It's brutal. Yeah, absolutely brutal. Um, yeah, you know, and you, this is this is, I think, one of the most heartbreaking things in general about the way we treat animals. There's the pain and the confinement, but there's also the breaking up of families, oh and this God. happens in the farming system when oh babies are taken away from their mothers, oh. like newborn calves are removed from cows used for dairy. It happens in zoos when families are broken up, but I think we often ignore the mental anguish and the family relationships that we disrupt when we treat them this way. Often, oh my God, always, uh, always. I, 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 I've. You know, whenever I whenever I get into arguments with vegetarians, it's just like they, you know, sorry, the vegan vegetarian thing. But I'm just like the dairy thing. They just don't see it. They don't see the calves. They don't see the babies. They don't see the taking away of the families. And I'm like, to me, that's that's as bad as killing them and eating them. I mean, it's it's, it's in many ways you can make an argument. It's worse. It's just it's brutal, brutal. Every every time we see evidence of, of the way in which the cows are separated and the way in which they feel and the, the way in which they react to that separation, it just uh, it's, to me, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, we know it just destroys them. Oh, okay. Well, in more positive news. Yes, let's get to more positive news. I think we have two positive stories to end it up. Let's let's get there. We do. So so my last morning in London, Peter, before heading to Oxford, I woke up, turned on the BBC in my hotel. And there's a story on the BBC about uh, a report that came out from a committee calling for a total fur ban in the UK. So a total ban on imports of fur. And the motivation for this is that this this committee, this parliamentary committee, keeps finding that uh, faux fur, so things labeled faux fur, um, are actually real fur. So companies are passing off real fur as faux fur. And the reasons that they're doing this now is, is because fur is actually quite cheap to produce, especially fur that comes from China. And faux fur is relatively more expensive to produce. And, and, and I'm told there's also a glut of real fur on the market after India banned certain uh, imports from certain animals. So UK MPs are actually really keen on this and are uh, mobilizing to get a total ban on imports of fur, which would just be stunning. Wow. Yeah, that would be incredible. I mean, essentially, the risks are just too high. That's the idea, correct? 
we can't manage yeah. it anymore, so therefore we'll ban it all. Yeah, these companies are being deceitful. Consumers have um, don't have assurance that what they're actually purchasing is faux fur. It could be real fur, so let's just get rid of it all. And, of course, all the welfare and the cruelty issues that come with fur farms and um, trapping fur in the wild is, is just uh, horrific, too, and I think that plays a part of it. Wow. Well, that'll be interesting. I, I, I somehow don't see that one getting through, but uh, I always I always applaud people for, for taking on causes of that sort. It seems to me that's... Uh, that's that, that would face a lot of opposition, it seems. I'm yeah. sure it would, but there's mm. also something just so different. And, you know, I could feel it when I was over there, Peter, about attitudes in the UK towards animals versus mm. attitudes in North America. People identify themselves as animal lovers. Politicians always talk about themselves as animal lovers. Like there is something t- tangibly different. So, you know, I'm optimistic. But the first part, of course, is uh, starting the conversation, which is now underway. Wonderful. Let's uh, finish up by uh, this is I don't, I don't know if this falls into the pat on the back category, but it does involve animal justice. We want to uh, 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 go back to a story we followed several episodes ago involving the Edmonton Humane Society and uh, a very unfortunate situation with I believe it was three cats. Is that Camille that uh, right that were killed in the possession of the Edmonton Humane Society? Well, they weren't actually killed, but they were left behind. Sorry, in, they did um, not die. I forgot. I apologize. Yeah. I know. Somehow they were left in a transport vehicle for 22 days, remained alive. I still don't understand that one. Um, but, of course, we're deprived of food and water and we're found in, in, in not so great condition after 22 days. Yes. And we both worked on this case a little bit. Um, I was on uh, several Edmonton uh, uh, media outlets uh, talking about this because the original story, as we had heard it, was that the Humane Society had done only an internal investigation and that nothing else was happening. That's the way the story uh, was originally presented. And uh, there was a lot of pressure put on both by myself in Edmonton and by Animal Justice. We all communicated with uh, the Solicitor General, with the head of Edmonton Police, and we are uh, pleased to uh, inform you. And and I should say, Camille, that from everything I've heard, uh, the Edmonton Humane Society, um, I ended up meeting with them. Um, the Edmonton Humane Society recognized that an internal investigation wasn't quite good enough. And uh, I'm pleased to say there's been some action on this front. Yeah. And, you know, just just uh, you know, another point just for clarity is, again, we, we don't impute any ill motive on behalf of the Edmonton Humane Society. I can certainly appreciate how heartbroken they must have been at the situation, too. But, of course, from our perspective, it's really important that there is accountability for any public organization or private organization with public responsibilities that might have fallen in violation of our laws. Yes. And uh, the news is, of course, that the Edmonton uh, uh, police, we received a letter from the Edmonton Police Service um, that an investigation has been conducted now by, um, it was the Alberta SPCA, which is not connected to the Edmonton Humane Society. They are distinct organizations. Um, not my favorite preferred outcome per se. I'm, 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 as we've spoken on the show, I'm, I'm always a little reticent of private bodies uh, conducting public investigations to begin with, but at least we can uh, uh, be uh, uh, assured of the fact that an independent investigation was conducted by the Alberta SPCA and uh, they are currently deciding whether or not to recommend charges. Yeah, so I think that's a, a real win for transparency and accountability. And, you know, maybe there's grounds to proceed. Maybe they'll decide it's not in the public interest to do so for a variety of reasons. And I can understand that. But I think what needed to happen did happen. And that's a good thing. 
I think that's good. I do uh, hope in future that this example isolates what we talked about when we talked about this in the first time, the problem of using private investigators, which are private charities, to take on uh, public responsibilities. And, and one of the short the short sites of that or the shortcomings is that it's very difficult to ensure uh, accountability if things go wrong because there is no set structure in place. It is not the situation when you're dealing with, say, a police organization, uh, which is a fully public body, and there are all sorts of various public oversight committees, groups, uh, investigatory bodies, etc., that can ensure that things are done correctly when things go wrong. That does not exist uh, with private charities, and I think that's something that needs to be addressed in a much bigger way. I'm, I'm sort of glad this situation was resolved, but I think I'd like to see a more systemic solution. Yeah, and Peter, I guess we'll stay on that hobby horse, eh? Is that, that's, I don't know, now we're getting horse hooves again. Like, I, I, yeah, I guess it's a hobby <laughs> horse. All right, let's ride, let's ride. Let's ride. Here we go. <laughs> Heroes and Zeros. All right, we are back, and it's time for, I believe, everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. I've got some good news for you, Peter, because I met a Paw and Order listener at the uh, conference in Glasgow on ethical veganism. Shout out to Chris. And Chris confirmed that it is his favorite segment, so you've got one vote in your favor. I'm delighted. Every time we hear that we have another listener, I put a little... I have like a little, you know, I have a glass bowl and I put a little pebble in. So I'm up to 14 pebbles. I'm convinced we have at least 14 listeners of the show. So I'm, I'm slowly adding to my pebble collection. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're keeping <laughs> track of this so scientifically. <laughs> I, I just don't believe, I don't believe the iTunes numbers, Camille, unless I hear from people that tell me directly that I listen and I love Heroes and Zeros, I just refuse to believe it. But anyway, we've got a very fitting hero because it ties up on, with a bow, and I hope I never hear about your European trip again, Camille. We're going to put a bow mm -hmm. on the European Camille experience with our hero of the podcast. And we'd love to give the Hero Award this week to the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, in particular Andrew and Claire Lindsay, the father and daughter team, um, and many of their other family members involved too, and of course staff, who put on just an amazing summer school. I really do think that the caliber of people they pulled together and the quality of presentations at this event uh, was just great relationship building for the global animal law community. So hats off to the Lindsay's, hats off to the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And I hope some of you will consider going to the uh, summer school next year. The, the topic is humane education, but I think there's a lot of room for legal analysis within that umbrella. I think there is a good chance that I will be there next year. I have some, it looks like it's always early for me to say, but I'm looking like I'm scheduled to be in Europe at some point uh, over the summer, and I'm, I'm hoping to make it happen. And, and again, I just want to say that one of the reasons I think it's such a fitting hero is I think any institution that's uh, starting out and devoting uh, so much time and attention to animal issues is wonderful. And obviously to get this affiliated with Oxford is a lot like, you know, Harvard getting its Center for Animal Law Studies up off the ground. It's the same idea. Anytime that we can promote the legitimacy of these issues, we have a much better chance of, of bringing these issues to the mainstream because it's just without legitimacy and without people uh, thinking it's important, it's a lot harder to actually bring these things forward. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it, it's just been great to see that trend around the world. And I, I think it's only going to continue. Every hero has a zero. And this time, oh, my God, is it... Are we going back to the CFIA? Are they a two-time zero, Camille? I'm not... I, my recollection Has it only been two? Yes, they are. 
Has it we only have... been two, Peter? Like, I feel like I could give the CFIA the zero award, like, basically every, every week month. if we wanted yeah, to. We, we probably could. Probably could. So this time we're doing the CFIA. Again, uh, a recent report suggests they are not doing much to help out horses who are uh, uh, supposed to be protected. Not much at all. So our federal transport laws say that if you're transporting horses over a certain size, they need to be segregated for their own well-being and welfare. And what's happening now is horses are being shipped by air to Japan, large draft horses, well over the size specified in the statute. And they're being crammed three to four horses in a crate, and oftentimes they can't even fully stand up. So activists have been documenting this and agitating about this for quite some time because it's a really clear violation of our Mm. transport laws. Mm. And uh, one such person wrote to the uh, agriculture minister, Lawrence McCauley, about this. And he responded with a letter admitting that the CFIA has a policy of not enforcing the laws when it comes to horses being shipped by air. So according to him, this was just not foreseeable when the regulations were first drafted back in the 70s, that that air shipment would be a thing. And they just don't really feel like it's worth their time to to enforce it. So instead, they're relying on other, you know, outcome-based measures uh, as metrics of whether the, the laws are being violated so it's actually it's actually appalling they have a formal policy of not enforcing the laws because this is a situation where they don't just feel it's convenient for them like essentially they're saying it's not convenient for the transporter to abide by the laws so they're not going to enforce it i peter i can't imagine anything more appalling than this yes it's very inconvenient Uh, laws are i have to say i find many laws to be quite inconvenient to me and uh well i you know there's only so much you can joke about it. It is. It is quite appalling. I just don't understand uh, the reasoning here. Yeah, no, it, it's just it's just amazing that because the transporters essentially don't want to abide by the laws, they're being given a free pass. Wow. Well, a very deserving zero. I, I have a feeling CFIA might come up uh, again and again in this area because, uh, unfortunately, uh, as we will, I'm sure, touch on in a future episode on enforcement, it is a, a real problematic area when our uh, leading enforcer with the government has shown so little interest in enforcing many of the rules it actually has, the actual powers it has to sanction those who harm animals. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's one of the biggest challenges facing animals, in particular farmed animals. Well, Camille, I have to say it's been a pleasure to get back uh, on the air with you. I, I've enjoyed it so much that I'm immediately going on holiday and missing the next episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm joined by a very special guest host. You yes. will all find out who that is next week, but I, I have a feeling you'll enjoy the episode. I do too, and I will say I'm looking forward to our regular transmission, regular transmission, um, resuming at the end of August. We have some really exciting stuff lined up for the fall, including we have some special guests coming through the fall. I'm very excited about that. There's a lot of good stuff coming on Paw and Order. Um, we're almost uh, we're, we're almost through three quarters of the year, Camille. Kind of unbelievable. It's been wonderful. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you on a future episode of Paw and Order. Same here. Enjoy your vacation, Peter. Thank you. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. 
And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Work.